Aloha, everybody, and welcome to The Jason Jones Show. And uh, this week is an important show to me because we're interviewing my hero, Faith McDonald. Faith is the director of the Religious Liberty Program at the Institute on Religion and Democracy in Washington, D.C. And uh, over there, Faith works to inform and motivate U.S. church members about the persecution of Christians around the world. She speaks frequently to groups, conferences, and other forums for education and advocacy. She was a co-author of Girl Soldier, A Story of Hope for Northern Uganda's Children. She writes for National Review, The Weekly Standard, World Magazine, Prism, American Spectator, Front Page Magazine, and most importantly, she writes for the stream. And we're going to be talking about the persecuted church, specifically in Nigeria. And we're going to answer, Faith's going to answer these questions. Why should we care about persecuted ethnic and religious minorities around the world? Okay, now I care. How do I know what's happening in every corner of the world? Okay, now I know. What can we do about it? Faith's going to let you know. And I think like like me, most of us feel overwhelmed. And faith is going to help make us feel less whelmed. Is that a word? Here we go. The Jason Jones Show. And you need to know, this episode was brought to you by the Vulnerable People Project. After you listen to this podcast with faith, you are going to want to join the Vulnerable People Project and their great campaign to protect the incomparable dignity of the human person and to protect the vulnerable from violence. And you can do that by signing up to be a part of the great campaign to protect the vulnerable at thegreatcampaign.org. Faith McDonald, welcome to the Jason Jones podcast, the Jason Jones show. Thank you, Jason. It's great to be with you and congratulations on this cool show. Well, you know, I, I I wanted to do this podcast was because I have marvelous friends like you. I woke up in a good mood today. By the way, it's it's early in the morning, Hawaii time, later in the afternoon for you in Washington, D.C. I woke up in a good mood. I'm like, why am I in such a good mood? And I'm going to humble brag. I just thought I live. I turned to my wife. I said, we live the most beautiful, romantic life. Last night, I was with a beautiful family from New Zealand. They're really involved in the work to promote a culture of life in new, in their country, in New Zealand and around the world. Then I, I wake up, I eat waffles with my wife and kids. And then I get to talk to one of my heroes, Faith McDonald, and then share you with the world. And Aww. I thought that is the great privilege of my life. And I started this podcast because I don't want to be selfish and share my relationship and my conversations with heroes. And you are a hero. With heroes like you, I want to share it, share it with the world, and I especially want to share it in service of the vulnerable, in, in, in service of, of those um, in the midst of their great struggles. And Faith, you're somebody who's lived a life, your life, and I want to find out what inspired that, but you've lived your life in solidarity with the persecuted church, in solidarity with the most vulnerable. And folks, we're going to be talking about Nigeria today, and maybe we might drift beyond Nigeria but I want you to stick around for this entire podcast. And it's going to be very simple. I want to I want to structure this very simply, Faith. But I'm going to say that I have a few questions I want you to answer, but I'm just going to say them all up front so folks know what we're going to be talking about today. We, we have this mass slaughter of Christians in Nigeria. We have the Nuba suffering in Sudan. We've had the genocides of the Yazidi and other ethnic and religious minorities or Christian brothers and sisters in Iraq and Syria. We have the Dalit suffering in India. There are all these folks all over the world, and we, we, we become overwhelmed. And so I just want to ask you a few questions, and it's simple. Why should we care? Why should I, you know, a guy living in Hawaii, or why should I, a guy who runs a tow truck company in, in Palm Beach, you know, why should I, I'm, a, I'm an orthodontist in Denver, why should I care? Why should we care? It's going to be the first question. And then, okay, I, I'm supposed to care. How in the world do I know? How, how in the world can we know what's happening all over the world? How do I, who are the Nuba? You know, um, who are, you know, who are the Dinka? Who are the Dalit? How am I supposed to know? Where's the Southern Kordofan? How am I supposed to know that? Um, so how do we know? Okay, now I know. You're going to tell us how we know. And well, what in the world can I do about it? Um, and so those are the, those are the questions that I, I want to talk to you about today. But before we get there, 
you know, for me, Faith, I've been very involved, of course, in the pro-life movement. I've been involved with Iraqi. I've been involved with Iraq, the Kurds since college, um, the Sudanese, the struggle in Sudan for about 20 years. And for me, it all started just through friends, personal relationships. But when it sort of Nigeria or India or places I don't have close personal relationships, I don't know much about what's going on and I'm not doing anything about it. Um, but you, you've been living a life with the persecuted church all over the world. So for you, how did it start? Wow. Okay, Jason. Well, first of all, thank you for what you have been doing, because it is great. Um, And what you say about personal relationships is so important, because people may get involved uh, and and care about something initially uh, because of the issue and because they feel like they're supposed to. But if they don't build some kind of relationship, um, they're probably not going to stay in it for the long haul. So for me, it has been it's been growth over 20 25 years of relationships but it started it started as an idea back when i was in college hearing about christians being persecuted in the soviet union in east Eastern Europe, and suddenly realizing uh, what it meant to suffer for your faith. Um, So, you know, I'm the kind of person where I, you know, it's all or nothing. So I wrote to every organization I could find that was dealing with persecuted Christians in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. Um, Like at that time, it was Eastern European Bible Mission, Keston College, um, Open Doors, all those kind of things. And um, uh, just said, what can I do? Got involved, um, you know, years later. Well, in what also helps you to keep going is when you see the answers to your prayer and your advocacy in flesh and blood. Um, after writing to a Christian prisoner, Alexander Ogorodnikov in, in the Soviet Union, who was a, a Christian in prison for his faith, to get to actually meet him, to see him released from prison and in the United States, and then to go to Moscow and work with him to help the poor that he was then helping as a free Christian man um, just does so much for your faith and for your belief that you can make a difference. That God now, what, year, faith, what year was that? What year was that? <laughs> oh, wow. You want to really age me. Um, uh, let's see. I think uh, Ogorodnikov, uh, when we went to see him, it was before the end of the Soviet Union. Um, so that would have been like 1990 that I was in Moscow um, and marching around the Kremlin and singing um, The Battle Belongs to the Lord, <laughs> waiting for the Kremlin to fall down, which, uh, you know, sort of and, happened. And folks, when you were in college, when I was in college, the idea that the Soviet Union was going to crumble was an impossible thought. When I was in basic training, everything I threw a grenade at, every silhouette I threw a grenade at, every silhouette I shot had a little hammer and sickle on it. Wow. You know, World War III seemed inevitable. The Soviet Union seemed invincible. And there you were marching around the Kremlin singing hymns. (laughs) And then it all fell in the blink of an eye. Yeah, yeah. Did that early success as a young woman inspire you to know that, wow, we can really have success? It did. But you know what else it did, Jason? It it blew my mind because once the Soviet Union fell down, I thought, phew, that's it. There's no more persecution of Christians. And then I found out about Islam. Um, and it just, it was like, really? We're going to have to deal with this now? And uh, to see, uh, when I came to work at IRD, which was October of 1993, we had a meeting with um, a Christian journalist named David Aikman. And he told us that first week that I was at IRD that the worst persecution of Christians going on in the world at that time was in the Sudan. And my boss looked at me and said, well, Faith, I guess we know where we're going to have to focus our attention. And uh, from then on, it was working for both the Christians who were being persecuted by the remaining communist countries, China, North Korea, Cuba, things like that. But a big push because of Islamic supremacism and the countries that you've mentioned, Iraq, Sudan, South Sudan, Nigeria, Egypt, you know, all those countries that are under um, Islamic suppression and the forced Sharia law on everyone. 
And and I want to I want to take a little side bracket on that faith. I, you know, it was through my friendship with Brad Phillips in, in around 1999. Brad Phillips is the founder of the Persecution Project Foundation, and his love of the people of Sudan through him and his stories, I fell in love with the people of Sudan. And then he he brought me there, and then it's one of those places. You know, when you're in South Sudan. I'd call home on the satellite phone and my wife would hear the sound in my voice and she'd say, no, we're not moving to South Sudan, you know, because she could hear the love I had for the place. Hmm. But what was interesting is when I got involved in this, it was like, I I hate to say it, I'm going to be honest, like a crusader that Hmm. Muslims are the enemy. And, 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 but then it was through my work to, to, to protect the persecuted Christians from radical Islam that I really met and fell in love with so many Muslims. And I'm sure the same thing has happened to you as well, right? Oh, yes. I mean, the people that I work with in Sudan now, uh, as opposed to South Sudan especially, um, are people from the far north of Nubia who are Muslims and the Darfuris and um, uh, eastern Sudan, the Bija people. Um, so it's it's really, it's an ideology. It's the Islamic supremacism that's the problem that basically, you know, wants to build a caliphate all over Africa and both Muslims and Christians. Christians in Sudan are standing against that. And of course, South Sudan, the reason that they were hammered and persecuted and enslaved for so many years, um, and really the Sudan still has it in for that country, um, was because they stood as a, um, a barrier between what the government of Sudan wants to do to the rest of Africa. Yeah, and I mean, in real numbers, the great, the they're the real victims in the numbers, the greatest amount of victims from the radical Islamists are other are Muslims. Yeah, um, if we're to look yeah. at the numbers. If it, it right now, I would say it's probably fifty fifty um, in current situations. In the past, yes, um, but right now, th- there's a real. Uh, um, ongoing uh, attack on Christians, like we were just talking about with Nigeria. I mean, they're just Boko Haram and the Fulani alone could raise the amount of Christians killed astronomically. And, and, that, and let's go to that now. Share, okay. share with us um, before we ask why. You know, the, you answer the questions. We'll go back mm-hmm. to those original questions. Mm-hmm. Share with everyone what is happening in Nigeria. And what the real possibility that this could erupt into something even much worse than what we saw in Sudan. Okay. Yeah, because Nigeria is such a populous country, um, and it has basically been a country that is about – the whole country is about 60% Christian um, and 40% Muslim and other faiths. Um, But the power centers are with the Islamic governments right now. Um, And Christians in particular have had it really rough for a long time. You you ask, uh, why should people care? Well, if you are a believer in Christ, um, these are your brothers and sisters. And the church in Nigeria is very strong. The church in Nigeria is very faithful. Um, And uh, for me, it's because uh, as an Anglican Christian, uh, the Anglican church has 22 million people in Nigeria. Um, So right now, uh, the Christians are under attack. They have been uh, since since Nigeria was um, since Nigeria was uh, um, independent. Really, this has been going on, but it, it has uh, gotten worse um, first with the Boko Haram group, which, um, you know, as we know from our friend John's article uh, mentions, Boko Haram has now become the ISIS of Nigeria. Really, it's the Islamic State of Western Africa um, and pledged uh, allegiance to ISIS. So uh, and you're referring to John and you're referring to John Samirak's interview yes. with an intelligent an American intelligence officer. Yes. Who- sort of lays it out. And by the way, go to the stream, look at look at John Zmirak's article. The stream has been one of the, the only places in the American press where you're going to find consistent, in-depth coverage of not only what's happening in Nigeria, but what's happening to Christians in Iraq and Syria and around the world. Yes, that's right. Um, so uh, Boko Haram has been that problem anyway. And uh, 
here in Washington, D.C., I was part of a group that tried to get our U.S. State Department to designate Boko Haram as a foreign terrorist organization. And we faced great opposition from uh, the Clinton State Department uh, and took three years. In the meantime, Christian villages were being wiped out. Um, police stations were being attacked. As you say, Boko Haram went after Muslims, too. So it was just a slaughter all over Nigeria. Um, and finally, after three years, the State Department was willing to designate them as a foreign terrorist organization. But now, you know, it's 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 just unbelievable. The Fulani have passed Boko Haram as a threat and as a, a terrorist organization. It's really um, called a, uh, a terrorist organization that comes right after ISIS in terms of its lethalness and its um, brutality. Uh, And the Fulani are a tribe in Western Africa that really go across many different countries. Um, They were known as herdsmen, and people use that now as a way to disguise the fact that they're on a a jihad um, against the Christians. So they talk about herdsmen, they talk about um, the fact that it's climate change that has forced these poor cattle people to go after the land of the farmers who just all happen to be Christians. Um, But it's it's really a systematic attack, as the the former intelligence uh, man says in John's article, a It's a systematic attack to wipe out Christianity in Nigeria. And I don't know if you know this, Jason, but to tie Sudan back in, the president of Sudan, Omar el-Bashir, is a Fulani. I did not know that. The president of Nigeria is Fulani. The president of of Sudan is Fulani. It's a a match made in hell, as you would say. But um, they, uh, the... the, um, the Fulani and the Boko Haram terrorists have also been trained in Sudan, which getting on to why people should care again. Here's another reason why people should care, even if they don't really care that much about other people. This is a national security issue for us, as well as a global security issue. These countries are working together uh, to bring about changes that we don't want to see in our world. Well, okay. So, what are what are the numbers we're talking about in Nigeria now? Oh my gosh. Um, well, uh, the the Boko Haram. I think it, it the latest is that it's been responsible for the death of nine thousand people in the last uh, year or so. I'm really I'm not great at numbers, Jason. I I focus on. Uh, we got thousands just in the past month. Now, how yeah. how come this isn't in the press? Am I? I read the newspaper every morning. First thing I do when I wake up, go out, grab the newspaper. Actually, the first thing I do is turn on my phone and look at the Drudge Report, walk downstairs, grab the newspaper. Coffee, I do. Coffee, exactly. (laughs) Okay. And I don't see this in the paper. You know what I do see? What? Uh, Maybe, maybe, this is a news story that was this, a huge news story this week. Maybe in Iceland, maybe, they're not quite sure, but maybe a black whale was killed mm. i don't even know what a black whale is or blue whale i don't even know i don't even blue know what a blue whale. whale is maybe a blue whale was killed but maybe it was a dorsal whale that looked like a blue whale that was that was the big story and i thought maybe the people of nigeria should identify as blue whales self-identify as blue whales could you imagine if a thousand whales were killed last week oh my gosh what uh, if the news story was a thousand whales were killed last week People would be unhinged. They would be demonstrating in the streets. Um, and it, it would be a terrible thing. But these are our fellow human beings. And these are people. See, you, you ask. Know, that might sound heartless. I don't think it's a terrible thing. I don't even care. I don't care if a thousand whales are harpooned next week by the Japanese. Oh. I really, really do not. I, I can't care. How in the world can I care when I know what's happening in Nigeria to women and to children? What's happening in Kurdistan uh, to women and children right now? How I, I want to be charitable, Faith. So what I think is maybe it's just it's easy at dinner parties to sit there and think about and talk about a polar bear. And it's just too much. It's just too much for people to really 
think about that young Yazidi girl in an ISIS rape camp. So it's not that they're heartless. It's just they don't have the fortitude to have heart. Is yeah. that a good way to say it? That's a great way to say it. I, I think so. And but I think, you know, you know, the, the, there's that that line about staring into the abyss. Sometimes we have to stare into the abyss, but we have to to know that God is still in control um, or else we, we wouldn't be able to take it. Like on my phone, on WhatsApp, I get messages about slaughters taking place by the Fulani in Nigeria about every couple hours, Jason. Um, they're going on right Right now, even as we're speaking, um, and you know, sometimes I just have to turn the phone off for a few minutes and say, "God help us! What are we going to do about this?" But, but imagine being in that situation, not just having to hear about it. And that's, you know, people have said to me, "How could you have let your child, your daughter, um, hear about these things? You should have protected her." And and part of me feels guilty for letting my daughter know about the persecution of Christians around the world. But the rest of me says, what about the Christian children who are being persecuted? I want my daughter to, to feel solidarity with them. So you know, when um, I was young and I would go to bar mitzvahs, um, you probably remember this in the 80s and mm-hmm. the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. They would always do a bar mitzvah for a child, a young boy in, in the Soviet Union. Oh, and yeah. so, do you remember that? Yeah. I think it's very important. You know, my children begin doing homeless missions with me as soon as they're born. Hmm. Something we do, and I hate calling them homeless missions. We say visiting our neighbors without homes because they're our mm-hmm. neighbors. Mm-hmm. We visit our neighbors with homes. We get to know them. We should know our neighbors without homes. And I do see that it stings my children. Mm-hmm. I do see them wrestling with it and trying to grapple with it, especially in Hawaii where we have homeless children all over the place. And so they see that. They do learn about the persecuted church. Mm-hmm. But one thing I want my children to know, I always try to burn in them, is that with privilege comes responsibility and that we have been blessed, unmerited. Mm-hmm. It's the sacrifice of our ancestors that have given us the blessings of liberty and economic prosperity. And with that comes an obligation to live in solidarity with the less the less privileged. Amen. And my kids know that by the time they're four. We have a friend, Dominic Saputo, who wrote a brilliant book. And in it, he, sa- he, he says, I, I might get the numbers wrong, but it's, it's, it's well over 50% of the verses in the Bible on tithing in the New Testament are about tithing to the persecuted church, over 50%. Yeah. And, um, and it's well over 50%, actually. I think it was like 78% of the Bible verses on tithing are on supporting the persecuted church. One of my favorite quotes is from Rene Girard, which is when you are in solidarity with the vulnerable, you become vulnerable. Mm. Even, even if that means that just to think about it causes you to be uncomfortable, to talk about it alienates people. Maybe mm-hmm. talking about global warming doesn't make anyone uncomfortable, mm-hmm. doesn't, doesn't uh, alienate anyone. You, you'll alienate me, though. If you talk about global warming at a party <laughs> in front of me, I'll think you're a knucklehead. But most people, I don't think it'll offend. Mm. Um, and I train no. my children, by the way, when I say, whenever you hear global warming, whenever you hear, I want you to say to yourself, human sex trafficking. When you know, I, I, you find all the social justice warrior buzzwords, mm-hmm. then say, you know, the Yazidi. Remind mm-hmm. yourself, don't let that advertising go to waste. Mm-hmm. Whenever you hear this kind of, you know, whenever you, whenever you see that humane society ad with the poor little puppies in a cage. I want you to picture young girls in a cage. Mm. I don't want that money to go to waste. I want it to have some sort of use. Mm. Um, so so one, one of the things Dominic says, the reason we should care is because our Lord commands it. If you're a Christian, he commands that you care. Um, and, and what would your answer, be, your succinct answer to be, uh, be to that? Why should we care? Well, as you said, because as Christians, we're mandated by the Bible to care. We should care just uh, morally because it's the right thing to do. We should care because it will have an effect on the whole world. When there is religious freedom, uh, the whole world is better. Uh, and even even economic prosperity goes up when there's religious freedom. Um, so uh, for all of those reasons, we should care, but particularly because these are brothers 
brothers and sisters who deserve our care. And someday they're going to stand before the throne of God and be a witness to whether we cared or not. I mean, read Matthew 25 and uh, talk about that. Right. And do you find I have found that when you cultivate this sort of habit of solidarity, um, you can't escape it. And Mm -hmm. once you get to know about these people, uh, maybe that that leads to our next question. Okay, now you've convinced me, Faith, that we should care. Now, how do we know? How do we know? Well, Jason, how in the world do we know? You said yourself that we don't find out through the media. And I think with the media, the problem is not what you were saying about the the lack of comfort and that they'd rather have uh, cute polar bears and stuff. There's the the media doesn't want to talk about this, particularly when it concerns Christians. So if we hear about Nigeria, for instance, at all, we hear about clashes between Christians and Muslims. Um, They use moral equivalents all the time. Um, they talk about, the, as we said, the, the climate change that causes these poor disenfranchised herdsmen to go after the land that just happens to belong to the Christians. Um, or, you know, we hear fake news all the time about South Sudan right now, this struggling little country that was trying to become a a democracy and to be an ally to the United States. But even our administration is believing this, the fake stories about South Sudan. And um, we could have a great ally in South Sudan, but instead we're alienating them because the the government of Sudan has helped the rebels there to to just destroy the country and to make the president of Sudan, South Sudan look as if he's the bad guy when he's the one trying to hold the country together. Yeah, that moral equivalence, it's, it's unacceptable to ever present Christians as victims, isn't it? It always, they're, 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 I mean, they could be the poorest. When I was in Sudan, you see Christians, they are poor. The children mm-hmm. are hungry, they're poor. Mm-hmm. And the Muslims are the ones with the wealth and the power. But the Western media, ha- you know, has this bias. What is the source of that bias that that the Christians are the villains all over the world, whether it's the poorest Christian community in Sudan or whether they're the ancient Christian communities of Iraq? Yeah. Well, why can't the press ever just allow them to be victims? Well, why the moral equivalence all the time? Gosh, well, I'd like to be charitable and say that it's just ignorance on their part. And I think on some of their parts it is. I mean, I remember when we first started hearing about uh, ISIS and even Al-Qaeda in, in Iraq and Syria and the, the, the noon symbol being Uh, put on people's houses, there were media people who were saying, Christians, are there Christians in Iraq? I thought, you know, that's the Middle East. Isn't that a Muslim country? You know, Congressman, former Congressman Frank Wolf was going around saying, Basically, this is the cradle of Christianity. This is where Abraham came from. You know, this is where Jonah went and preached to the city for three days and the whole town of Nineveh repented. You know, I mean, this is rich, rich Bible. And of course, I. I, there's ignorance of the Bible. There's there's ignorance in general. And then there's downright hostility. As I said, you know, Christians just have a bad rap. They're the ones who who don't believe in, you know, women's rights or um, uh, gay rights and all this. And they're just evil people who hate everyone. So they deserve what's coming to them. That's, you know, I'll tell you a story on that faith in the midst of the genocide in Iraq when ISIS was at its peak. I was at a party in Hollywood with some film industry friends and one of the biggest music uh, produ- uh, music video pr- directors in the world was there and he was smoking marijuana out of a vape pen. And the guy was just a goofball. And, uh, but he was going on and on and on about global warming. And I said, brother, I said, stop talking about global warming. Like how in the world can you waste your you know breath on global warming mm. when we have a genocide happening right now? You know, and, and I was going on and on and on about the Christians in Iraq in Syria. And he looked at me and he like this little sniveling little laugh, like, <laughs> bro, a good serves those Southern Baptists right for going to Iraq. <gasps> he, you know, he assumed that there were these, you know, missionaries from Alabama that were being killed in Iraq. That's the only thing his brain could understand. And then as oh we tried God. to explain it to him, it became evident that he, he just, 
didn't really care at all. And he was uh, a virtue signaling social justice warrior. But you're right. They don't even understand that like Christian and my mom, my Muslim friends in Iraq will say that we are the guests of the Yazidi, the Jews and the Christians, that th- this was their home first. I mean, that these wow. are it's, these are ancient Christian. I went to a church in Iraq that was built. Well, this was the third church on that site. They called it the new church. Mm. And the new church was built in 1100 AD. <laughs> the new church. <laughs> That's the new church. Um, wow. And I said, who built the first church? They said, St. Thomas. Oh, my goodness. Um, you were talking about, you know, blaming global warming for all of the problems mm-hmm. of the world. I was with a Yazidi girl who was a survivor of ISIS. Mm-hmm. We went to, um, uh, uh, what do you call, what do they call those, those, those meetings where they all they get up there and they feel self-important. Uh, one of those, uh, at the UN. Oh, at the, I was going to say at the UN. Yeah, we were at the, we were at the UN. We were at the UN and they were, it was a, it was a meeting on displaced peoples. Oh, okay. Like and it was, and, stuff. Mm-hmm. and it was all about this ambassador was up there saying, you know, well, the cause, the greatest cause of, of, um, internally displaced peoples in the world today is global warming. <laughs> so this Yazidi girl asked to be, address the body and they let her address the body. A year ago, she was in an ISIS rape camp. Mm, mm. Every member of her family was killed by ISIS. Mm. She gets up there and she says, and by the way, she was there with her best friend who was a Muslim Kurd. Mm. And she says, with all due respect, the cause of displaced peoples, the greatest cause of displaced peoples is Islamism. Wow. And then the ambassador said, we'll agree to disagree and waved her off. Oh, my goodness. You oh. have a victim of ISIS, the person that you say you care so much, a displaced person. Oh. And you they literally waved her off mm. and then adjourned the meeting. Oh, it was Orwellian. Mm-hmm. We just sat there baffled. And I thought it's, you know, we're, we're prepared for this kind of nonsense. How, I wonder what my friend. How, you know how she took it. Mm-hmm. I um, know that my Muslim Kurd friend, who is a hero of mine, her her, her name is Doctor Nimam Ghaffari. Mm. If you meet her and you're Christian, she'll tell you she's Muslim. If you're Muslim, she'll tell you she's Yazidi. If you're <laughs> or Jewish, and she'll she'll tell you whatever you're not. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And she's that type of person. And she gave me another wow. great quote. You know, I told you one of my favorite quotes is when you are in solidarity with the vulnerable, you become vulnerable. Hmm. She gave me another great quote. And this is a woman who's been captured by ISIS. She risks her life time and time and time again. Hmm. She was born in a cave hiding from Saddam, Uh. a Kurd, then made her way eventually to Sweden, where now she's a cardiologist, Hmm. cardiac surgeon. And she works half the year, makes money, and then goes and spends all of it the other half of the year in Iraq and Syria Hmm. and um, caring for the vulnerable. And she said this great quote, which was, just because you're in solidarity with the vulnerable gives you no right to expect that they, they have a duty to be in solidarity with you. Wow. And she shared this with me after she unflinchingly accepted the fact that a community she was helping um, because of rumors and gossip, mm-hmm. she spent half her year working to make money to buy an ambulance to serve this camp. Mm. Um they set the ambulance on fire oh. and um, yeah, and destroyed everything she bought and, oh. and she didn't flinch. She wow. said to be, yes, she says, that's true. To be in solidarity with the vulnerable is to become vulnerable. And we have no right to expect them to be in solidarity with us. And I thought, how beautiful, what a, what a beautiful woman. So selfless. She really is. And because, mm-hmm. you know, when you meet somebody like her, mm-hmm. you know, that she experienced great suffering as a young person. Mm. That mm. was her inciting incident. Is you know, in a film we say with the hero, the launch as a hero is that call mm. to adventure, an experience of a great injustice mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that puts in them this burning desire not to for no for the, you know you don't want anyone else to be in that same position that you were, and that's what just that's what drives her. Mm. Do you have an inciting incident like that, or was it just the gospel mm. of Jesus Christ? <laughs> well, that's or a pretty. Did you have a person, or did you have a personal injustice? Uh, not really. Um, I 
like I said, this I first heard about Christian persecution when I was in college, and I just felt a call about it, and then really didn't get involved uh, in working um, full time till I was at IRD. But I did uh, do ministry with the homeless um, in DC on what we called the Great Patrol, where we would ride around in the Salvation Army truck and feed the homeless who sleep on the steam grates. So that's why it's called the Great Patrol. Um, so that was kind of a, an, an op- eye-opening experience for me. Um, and I've also done work with kids in Northern Ireland. And um, that's another uh, place that's really dear to my heart. Um, so I think all of that combined with just the fact that knowing that um, – you know, the Bible says that every tribe and tongue and nation are going to be together um, in in heaven and uh, and that there will be a great cloud of witnesses to welcome us in. And those that cloud of witnesses comes from, you know, St. Thomas after he finished building his church and then got martyred. And, uh, you know, all these these people who are the heroes of our faith and then the the heroes of today um, who have also become martyrs for the faith. So I, I think that's that's for me. And just also that, like I said, I hate moral equivalence. It almost nauseates me. It makes me so angry and um, and and hate injustice. It's just the way I'm put together. Well, you know, what's great about the gospel is it lets us know there's no other. Mm-hmm. We have no other. Mm hmm that every man and woman on this planet is our brother and sister. I'll share with you a story. I was in Sudan with our friend, Brad Phillips, mm-hmm. who's a, another great hero. Mm-hmm. And we went to meet with the Janjaweed to share the gospel. Wow. And how would you describe the Janjaweed in a sentence for folks? Well, their, their name actually means devil on horseback. They are the Arab militia that were hired by the government of Sudan to kill people, especially the Darfuris. So, yeah, so Brad and I um, and two other friends, we went to um, we went and crossed this river. We had to cross a river on barrels. They pulled us across and we went to meet with the Janjaweed and they were very upset that we showed up, you know, obviously. Mm -hmm. Big, tall, blonde, white guys (laughs) and one Dinka translator. And um, they, they grilled us on why why we were there. And we said, we're here because you're our brother. And we know, brother, that our nieces and nephews need their uncles. And so we want to talk to you about how we can provide wells and water for our our nieces and nephews. But we have some things we want to talk to you about first. And what we wanted to talk to them about was their raids across the river on the Christians. Mm. And um, this gentleman said that I was talking to, and I have his picture up on Facebook. You know, he's this big strong, scary looking guy. And uh, he turned to the the man behind him and he said something. And then the guy behind him yelled at him. And then they started fighting. You know, you have these guys with AK-47s yelling at each other. Mm. And um, well, then they eventually invited us together. They They did their prayer. I sat down and knelt with them and prayed the rosary as they prayed. And um, as we went across the river and we got back, we got picked up by the SPLA. Um, They picked us up at the river and then took us back to our camp. Mm. Our translator said, you will never believe what the first man you were talking to said to the man behind him that started the fight. He he said, God sent them to us. The other man said, God wouldn't send these, you know, infidel to us. And he said, yes, only God can make a man love his enemy. Oh, and I wow. believe that they really love us. Oh, wow. Oh. And that's the gospel. He didn't know he was quoting wow. the gospel, right? He didn't know what he yeah. was saying. Yeah. But we did love him. And I might not mm-hmm. have loved him so much. I mean, I'd be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved him after I heard that. But I mm-hmm. looked at his children and I felt love and affection, right? And mm-hmm. a real desire to drill wells there. And, um, oh. and so to me, I just, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ right there. Yes. Um, so how do we know? We know you, you did a good job of saying the media doesn't tell us. Mm-hmm. And this is basically a softball pitch for you to give out your website information. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, one thing you should do is read the stream. And it is a great privilege of mine to be um, a senior contributor at the stream. I think it's one of the greatest sources of news and information in the world. Founded by James Robeson. And James is a man who has been serving the persecuted church his entire life. 
his entire adult life since the day he rolled out of Bible college, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but how how does your organization provide information? How can people follow you or um, your, get your newsletter or your, your beautiful magazine, by the way, which oh, is one of my favorite things to read? Oh, thank your journal. You. Yes. Well, we have a website. Uh, actually, it's a, a blog called JuicyEcumenism.com. And that is where I do a lot of my writing um, about the persecuted church around the world. Um, it, it's uh, also uh, I write for the stream as well sometimes. And uh, also I have a, a blog on the Pathios uh blog stream called um, Faith and Chelson. My co-worker Chelson and I do it together. Um, and uh, so all of those areas are places where people can find out more. Um, what I like to do is to empower people in the churches with the information they need. And, you know, we really have no excuse anymore, Jason. You can Google things and find out things that you never knew before. Um, it, it's what people spend their time on, what they what they want to find out about. If they want to find out about the persecuted church, they can find out. So um, they can start with me, I'll be happy to refer them to many different sources of information. Um, and, uh, you know, the thing is, there's voice of the, there's voice of the martyrs, there's right. open doors, there's persecution project foundation. And, and our right, new group just, that you and I are in save the persecuted Christians.com, which is, or doc, org, sorry, which is a coalition, um, to go back to what you said about the, the, the chair for the child being bar mitzvahed, um, it's based on the idea from the save the Soviet Jews of the 70s and 80s to um, to call attention by having banners in churches all across America. And any of your listeners who who are pastors who or who want to tell their pastor, you can get a free banner and put it in front of your church that says save the persecuted Christians and help call attention to what's going on to Christians around the world. Well, that was my next setup question. <laughs> what can we do? And I was going to send them to save the persecuted church.org. The website will be in the Christian. show notes. Yeah. Save the persecuted Christians.org. Um, yeah. Say, I'm sorry. Mind. Save the persecuted Christians.org. And, um, and if you sign up to get this banner movie to movement, uh, will give you the screening unlimited screening rights to the, the to the film, um, sing a little louder Ugh. and, you can watch Sing a Little Lo- Sing a Little Louder on YouTube. By the way, I don't even care. You don't have to tell us. Show it. Like mm. public screen it everywhere. You can even public screen it if you don't put your banner mm. up. But we want you to put your this mm. banner up in front of your church um, to to live in solidarity. Right? And isn't that the first step? First mm. of all, we need to pray for the persecuted church. Yes. All of us can do that. We need to develop a, a, what I say is. Um, uh, the habit of solidarity. Yeah. The habit of solidarity. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? The first place you should start is with your family. And by the way, that's the hardest. Mm-hmm. You have a brother who has an addiction to prescription drugs, right? To opiates, whatever. And he's lied to you. He's taken advantage of you time and time and time again. Well, guess what? When you work with persecuted Christians and organizations that support the persecuted Christians, that are local or indigenous. Oftentimes you get taken advantage of too. Mm-hmm. You get let down too. So you need to start close to home, closest to home with your own family. Then you need to start with your neighbors without homes. You need to serve your local uh, homeless. Um, and you need to constantly keep the persecuted church in mind, persecuted Christians in mind. And Save the Persecuted org is a coalition of all the best organizations. And you get this free banner. Um, they will send you regular updates. And you get to screen our film for free as much as you want. Um, and what, and what else can we is, do? Oh, my gosh. I love that film because it it says uh, what is going on today. In, and in that symbolism of the singing, um, you know, we we even use our own Christian Christianese and, and Christian culture to drown out the cries of the persecuted. Um, so people need to 
to find out what are what are we doing that makes makes us um, feel like we're morally superior if we don't speak the truth. Sometimes people think, uh, you know, we can't reach out to other cultures if we speak the truth about them. But then the people from those cultures will say, no, we wanted you to speak the truth. So for me, what people need to do is challenge the lies too. When you find out about something like what we've been talking about today, Jason, about the the Fulani herdsmen, people should, when they hear someone say something about Fulani herdsmen, they say, those are not just herdsmen. Those are people who are slaughtering Christians in Nigeria. Um, challenge. Do you remember when the Khmer Rouge, the Khmer Rouge were agrarian reformers? Oh my gosh. Jimmy Carter called for us to support the agrarian oh, reformers, oh, the Khmer gosh. Rouge that ended up killing one third of their country. Yes. And our former assistant secretary of state, uh, Johnny Carson, said that Boko Haram were disenfranchised youth who needed midnight basketball. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. I was. You know, this is what happens when social justice warriors fall out of our universities into positions of power. <laughs> they do not change. You would think that being around death and destruction, smelling human flesh by seeing the victims of ISIS, it would it would snap them out of this sort of victimist spell. Mm-hmm. Victimism is another uh, phrase coined by Rene Girard that I love, which mm. is feigning concern for the vulnerable to become powerful. Oh wow! Feigning concern for the po- the, uh, the vulnerable to become powerful, mm. and victimism is disgusting. It's like the worst thing in the world. The best thing in the world is to live in solidarity with the vulnerable. The worst thing in the world is to feign concern for the vulnerable to gain power. Mm. And what's scary for people like us, Faith, that kind of do this for a living, mm-hmm. I think the line between the one and the other yeah. is just a, is, a, is is razor thin and you don't know when you go from one to the other. So you have to be prayerful and thoughtful. Yeah. And one thing I would say if you're listening, you know, I kind of fell in to working with the persecuted church through my friend, Brad Phillips. I met Brad my first day in Washington, DC. <laughs> and I became a, a communications director for a large nonprofit, which meant I was doing radio shows and television interviews, but I had come from grass, grassroots. So I met this guy, Brad Phillips, who was sharing with me about Sudan. I didn't know who Brad Phillips was, what a big deal he was. I said, hey, if you need anyone to knock on doors or ring a bell in front of grocery stores, I can do that for you on my free time. And I started doing that. He put, started to put me to work you know, um, passing out flyers at his talks. Mm -hmm. But what happens when you serve the persecuted church, you are around the most beautiful people in the world. Mm. I feel like I'm the guy that gets to be around Michelangelo and clean his brushes and build his scaffolding, getting to know people like you, Faith. Mm. I'll never forget the day I met you. I was on stage giving a speech and I saw you, right? And then I called you out in the middle of my talk, didn't I? (laughs) Yes. Am I remembering that correctly? I'm oh, giving yeah. a speech. At, at the, the NPC, at that, that the, the um, evening of prayer for the Christians in Iraq. That's right. It was an evening for prayer for the Christians in Iraq at a historic civil rights church, yep. a Methodist church right on the hill. Would well, you remember the name of that church? Oh, gosh. I, I know it played a big part in the civil rights movement. I, and there I am. I was honored. I always said, why did they invite me? And then, I'm, you know, there are all these Iraqis speaking and then I'm there. And then I see you and I'm like, wait. That's my hero, Faith. And I and I said from the stage, wait, why is Faith McDonald down there and I'm up here speaking? Didn't I say that? I think you did, yeah. I was I'm like, like that's my hero right there. This guy I, my hero is down there and, and I never had met you. Did I meet you? I think that's the first that's time I met you, right? the very first time we ever met because I saw your name on the program and I was like, oh, wow, cool. Jason Jones, I can't wait to meet him. <laughs> I didn't know well, there I am and I see you, you by the way. Do you know how I know of you? Do you know who tells me about you? Oh, my Sudanese friends. <laughs> so my vision of you was painted by my friends from Sudan. Wow. And then there you were listening to me speak. And I have to say, it was like, wow, Faith McDonald is here to listen to me speak about the persecuted church. Just goofy, just bizarre. The world's gone upside down. But that is what happens when you serve the persecuted church. Mm. When you serve the vulnerable, mm-hmm. you meet the most beautiful people in the world. And everything comes to life. Everything is filled with color Mm. and and faith. So I just want to thank you Mm. for your life. And I know how challenging it is. I know how hard it is. I know the fortitude that it takes, the frustration. You you have foreign governments painting pictures of you as a villain. And then I call you, you know, and they do hit pieces on you, sponsored by foreign terrorist states. And you have the best 
response. You're joyful. You laugh about it. You know, I'd be vindictive and angry and you're just laughing. Uh, well, Jason, let me just tell them, you know, and this is it's not just foreign foreign governments. But again, getting back to this issue of moral equivalence, it's the rebels in South Sudan that unfortunately our government seems to think should be back in the government with the true government of South Sudan, who called me an arms dealer for the president of South Sudan. <laughs> Wait, are you an arms dealer? Am I interviewing an arm, international arms dealer? This is exciting. Oh, gosh. I don't have the hand-eye coordination to even shoot a gun. <laughs> by, by the way, you would be the best person to like be an arms dealer because nobody would expect it. But for folks listening, trust us. Faith has been called an international arms dealer. I mean, but you laugh, you're laughing about it. You're talking about it on my, my podcast, but I want to thank you for inspiring me. And and we have four questions and one awkward opportunity. Mm -hmm. Can I give you my four questions and one awkward opportunity? Sure. Okay. Faith McDonald Wood, when you were a little girl, when you were a young girl, what did you want to be when you grow up? Oh, I think I always wanted to be a writer because I read Harriet the Spy, that that book that a lot of Uh kids read. Uh, Now, this is evidence that you might be an arms dealer again. (laughs) Oh, no. This is going to be clipped up and Sudan is going to, the government of Sudan is going to use this. No, but I love to write. um, Or actually, Mm -hmm. I I love to have written. The process of writing is a pain in the neck. Now, you know you just plagiarized that. I know who originally (laughs) said that. Do you know who said that? Bill Buckley. Oh, okay. Well, he's a good guy. You didn't guy know that famous right? quote. He was asked by Charlie Rose, you know, tell us how, you know, why you love writing so much. He goes, I hate writing. I love having to, I love to have yeah. written. <laughs> well, it's true. I feel the same way about movies. Mm. Oh, well, you're wonderful. Mm. I hate making them, but I love having made them. <laughs> so, so, so since you were a little girl, young woman, you knew you wanted to be a writer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I didn't Amazing. want to be journalist. I wanted to write my opinions and make people believe them. <laughs> well, praise God, you do that. And and, we're, and second question: Where are you? Where were you born, or where are you from? Hartford, Connecticut. Um, my parents were in the Salvation Army as Salvation Army officers, so we moved around a lot. I was born in Hartford, but I went to nine different schools growing up. Well, you know, um, you're a, you're an Anglican from Hartford, Connecticut, and my wife thinks I'm an anti-wasp bigot. She thinks I hate wasps. But you are my friend. You're an Anglican, and you are from Connecticut. So I can officially say some of my best friends are super wasps. <laughs> Irish, okay. that. Irish. Oh, that's right. So, okay, now here, this next question is my favorite question because I think it tells you the most about people, somebody. Okay. What is it that you daydream about? Mm, getting back to South Sudan. That's beautiful. So you, like in your free time, mm-hmm. you just sit there and you, you Google, <laughs> like I Google, are any, does eBay have winning boxing gloves on sale? <laughs> and you're daydreaming about going to South Sudan. Yeah, I, I would like to, uh, to, to get working with civil society there. And my friend, Colonel Angelos has a band. So I'd love to sing with the band over there and teach them some worship songs and learn some African worship songs and just jam. Now, do you have, so that's your hobby, music? Well, I love music. I grew up in the Salvation Army, so I played a a brass instrument, a euphonium horn growing up, and I played a tambourine, Salvation Army style, and I like to sing. So, yep. Okay, now this next question is kind of hard. So I used to have a boss, and every week he would give us, um, we'd have to sit down and give him our home run for the week and our foul ball or strikeout for the Ah. week. and. If you look back at your career, um, what would you say is your greatest success or the one thing that you feel most proud of accomplishing? Huh. What was your home run? Um, you mean besides my daughter, Fiona? <laughs> besides Fiona. Yeah, this would be in your vocation, vocation. to uh, serve the persecuted church. Um, I think probably being involved on helping to uh, push uh, U.S. foreign policy on the issue of religious persecution, being involved with the International Religious Freedom Act uh, being passed and the Sudan Peace Act and North Korea Human Rights Act, stuff like that. 
So you have a lot of home runs is what you're well, saying. That was like a Mitt Romney like answer. I asked you for one home run. You gave me 20. Well, Jason, I have about I have so many home runs. Let me go over all of them. <laughs> I'm teasing. Kate. I'm teasing. Okay. I love it. Okay, now this one is an awkward opportunity. Okay. Okay. This this is, if I do say so myself, the best question in the history of media ever. Ever. Never has there been a better opportunity for anyone. Okay. Mm -hmm. All of us walk around with some sort of regret or remorse or somebody we owe an apology to. Somewhere in the world, maybe they're living, maybe they've passed. Is there anyone in the world, Faith, that you, and I ask this to all my guests, that you owe an apology to that you've never been able to get around to saying, I'm sorry. Now's your chance. Whoa. On the Jason Jones show. Do I, do I have to say who the person is or just say that? You don't have to say the oh. specifics. You can tell us the story. Oh. Last week, we had a big Hollywood director out of the blue for the first time ever tell anybody, and he did it on the podcast, that he was responsible for an abortion and he apologized to the woman, not by name, but oh my. apologized for that. It was unbelievable. Wow. And I didn't, I, and that was, he was, that was the first time I did these questions. I didn't expect something so heavy. Uh-huh. Um, then I got a bunch of emails from listeners who said they loved it. And they expect a lot of people will be asking to be on the podcast just to be able to answer that question, which is something I didn't think wow. of. But no, no, yeah, this can be, you don't have to tell us ex- the specifics. Uh-huh. You can say their name or like for me, I, I think about this all the time is from like the third grade to the seventh grade. I beat up my brother every day. Oh. And like it just weighs on me. I can't say I'm sorry enough. So I thought everybody must have something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, considering what you said before, too, about solidarity starting with the family. um, My late husband, he felt like I cared more about these issues than I cared about him. Um, So I would want to tell him I'm sorry for making him feel that way. That's beautiful. And do you think that's something a lot of people, not just in the, the apostolic work that you do, but people that run car dealerships or grocery stores, that their spouses feel that their work is more important um, mm-hmm. to them than them. But what it's hard for us to convey is that we do it for them, right? Yeah, yeah. In a way, your service for the persecuted church was an expression of your love for your husband. Mm-hmm. Who, by the way, you adore. Can you tell us a little bit about him? What do you feel comfortable saying about him? I mean, when you talk to me about your husband, I love this guy. By the way, he sounds like a stereotype of an Irish he guy. Was, like everything good and beautiful about the Irish. When you talk about your late husband, and comes through. Wild and crazy about the Irish too. Yeah, exactly. Francis exactly. John McDonald. Um, he was just a, an amazing man. He was very talented in many ways. Um, he could put some anything together. He was a furniture refinisher. He was a carpenter. He ran the entire, um, uh, I forget what you call it, property uh, management of all the properties for the Salvation Army in Washington, D.C. Um, coming from the Falls Road in Belfast, Northern Ireland, um, as a Catholic who grew up on the Falls Road and who had a petrol bomb thrown through the window of his house when he was a little boy, um, who... Uh, you know, suffered a lot. See that, see, that's amazing. When you talk about your husband's youth, that, and that's where I see like your work mm-hmm. for the persecuted in many ways was an expression of love for your husband. And in a way of like trying to go back in a time machine and be there for him. Mm-hmm. I see mm-hmm. that. Does that make well, sense to you? Especially because, you know, of my, my work with the kids in Northern Ireland too. And, and uh, I met my husband after I had been working with kids in Northern Ireland. And it was like, wow, you know, this is just meant to be. So, um, uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think that it was. Um, and seeing the injustices that caused damage to him, um, that, you know, he, he did his best to overcome. Um, and I feel like, uh, for many years he was, um, being pursued by the hound of heaven. Uh, and finally the hound of heaven caught up with him just before he died. So, uh, it's, uh, yeah, God's mercy and God's grace, uh, is really something else. Well, Faith, I want to thank you for being so open with us. I want to thank you for your your vocation. I promised you it only 
be 30 minute interview and I lied. It's been about an hour. Eight minutes and nine seconds. There we go. Exactly. Now I want, I want you to know one of the, you know, I have a busy production schedule, a ridiculous travel schedule, but one of the reasons when I was thinking about doing this podcast, which I've been thinking about doing for years, like you were top of mind. It's like, I can't hoard my conversations with people like faith that, we need to put these out there for the world to hear these beautiful people and, and and just be another place for them to hear the wonderful work that you are doing so that you can inspire them the way that you inspire me to really live a disciplined life in solidarity with the vulnerable because faith, you and I have been blessed mm. with, with privilege, with opportunity, with wonderful friends, with powerful networks. And you've done such a good job of leveraging all of that for the most vulnerable people in every little corner of the world. So, Faith, thank you very much uh, for being on the Jason Jones Show. Oh, thank you, Jason. You are very welcome, and it was great talking to you, even if it is on a podcast and I'm spilling my guts <laughs> to the whole world. <laughs> you, didn't know, you, didn't, you didn't know that question was coming. Well, you were going to have you. You are going to be a regular contributor to the Jason Jones Show, and we, I look forward to talking to Good. you soon. Thank you. God bless. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Follow me because I am relentless on social media. You can follow me on my personal Facebook page because I like to have a conversation with my friends. You are my friend. I also post a lot on Instagram, a little bit on Twitter, and go to my website, movie2movement.com. That's www.movie2movement.com. And you can find out about my latest film projects. Talk to you next week.